Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with David Kane covering and analyzing the WTA Finals, an event I enjoyed so much and I'm thrilled to uh, have some women's tennis on here. David Kane is the perfect man to bring on for the job, a former WTA insider. Insider's kind of a buzzword, but in this case, case uh, I mean that literally worked for the WTA in their editorial department, is now over at Tennis Channel and Tennis.com as a writer and an editorial producer. We get into, obviously, some of the season-long storylines, Muguruza, Contivate, some of the other ca uh, casts of characters, Sakari Bedosa, um, Sabalenka, as well as Peng Shui at the end. Um, and it's a, a really good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. I want to start here at the top by, first of all, talking about how great the event was and with the Peng Shui situation going on at the same time and occupying a lot of our headspace. And hat tip to John Wertheim, who's been on this perspective from the very start. It is a coincidence that impo that's impossible not to notice that Guadalajara is an event that's thrown together last minute and is probably the biggest, is the biggest tennis event ever that takes place in Latin America. At the same time, while the relationship between the WTA and China appears to be in severe jeopardy, and this event doesn't just go on without a hitch, goes on, and for me, a smash hit. It had personality, the music, the aesthetic, the atmosphere. Everything about it was on the money. It, it brought it. So uh, it was... It was interesting to see these two things happening at the same time. I'll just say that. It also felt like the occasion, first major event in Latin America, really, really great atmospheres, especially at night. That had something to do with the champion, Garbine Muguruza. Congratulations to Garbine and her fans. Her biggest title since winning Wimbledon in 2017, Muguruza beats Contivate in the final. Well, Muguruza, a player who's been in four major finals in her career, has won two of them. We know that she's a player at her best, as good as anyone. But the confidence is sometimes in and out. It's not always there. It felt like the vibes in Guadalajara were so good. The spirit level was so high that it would be hard for Muguruza, especially because she... she was coming off some good results in the fall. Winning Chicago um, was, was one of the headliners there. It would have been hard for her to not feel confident on the court with the entire crowd behind her and just how much it meant to her coach, Conchita Martinez, who had never won the year-end championships, uh, Muguruza trying to become the first Spaniard to ever win that event in the biggest ever event in Latin America, in the history of tennis. What an occasion. It felt like there was a, this was almost a spiritual championship for Muguruza. And it does matter. It does matter because, because this is very mental for her a lot of the time. But in terms of the, the technique, there's a lot to talk about there as well before we get to David. The conditions here. We talk about altitude. 
And the most common tournament, you know, major tournament where we talk about altitude is Madrid. We talk about it a lot. Look, Madrid is, I believe, around 2,500 feet of altitude. It's between 2,000 and 3,000 feet of altitude. Guadalajara, to, Guadalajara is not even close to that. Guadalajara is above 5,000 feet. It's actually not comparable. This altitude is insane. It was visibly jarring how thin the air was, how fast the ball was flying through the air, and how difficult it was for these players to control the ball, keep it in the court. So the tennis was, on paper, it was ugly. I found it entertaining. I found it fascinating to watch the players try to, to kind of deal with these conditions. The balls were not normal. Even the balls were... They take compression out of the balls in Guadalajara to try to make it easier for the players to control it, but it still doesn't really work. And this was error-strewn tennis, but also very offensive and winner-heavy tennis. So I found it entertaining. But with all that being said, when it comes to Muguruza, I thought that there were two things happening in this tournament. There were players who were having trouble controlling the ball. But offense was, it was also difficult to defend. I think both things were true. It was, if you were going to play passive, you were going to, you were going to get hurt because the ball was so fast through the air that a player like Sviantek, a player like Sakari, I think when they got passive, they really paid the price. On the other hand, it was all about keeping the ball in the court. I thought Muguruza was the best all week at sustaining aggression, staying on top of the point, using her serve, keeping the ball in the corners, keeping the ball deep, but also not missing. By far the best at sustaining aggression throughout a rally without making a mistake, especially after those two tough round robin matches, loses her first match, an epic one in three sets, loses the, the first set against Krejcikova in the second round robin match, wins that one in three. Showed a lot of grit as well, a lot of heart, a lot of passion. Again, I think it comes back, you know, comes down to some of the crowd support she had um, and just how much this event meant to her. But technically speaking, she was controlling the ball way better than everyone else and maintaining aggression at the same time. That was the key. That was the ticket. That was going to propel her to victory. She also has a, a very mechanical, machine-like aspect to her game where it feels like the ball comes off her racket the same way over and over and over again. And I think it's a little bit easier for her to measure the ball in these kinds of conditions. The trajectory is the same. The speed is the same. And she was able to get into a rhythm that no one, no one was really able to establish except Contivate at times. Contivate had still a lot of trouble controlling her forehand. But if you're a player who hits the ball in a lot of different ways from a lot of different court positions, sometimes flat, sometimes spinny, I thought that wasn't ideal because it was so difficult to read these conditions and to try to hit, uh, you know, dialed in and measured ground strokes. So Muguruza's kind of mechanical technique and the again, the speeds and the trajectories and the spins being kind of the same every time, I think that also helped. 
she was dynamite, especially uh, through the semifinals and uh, and in, in this final. Really impressive stuff. Muguruza, champion, uh, emotional, amazing scenes. Again, congratulations to her and her fans. And for further discussion of Muguruza and the other players in these WTA finals field, without further ado, here's David Kane. Is it true that when you were with the WTA, you couldn't do podcasts? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it was, uh, I think everyone enjoyed Guadalajara immensely. Um, and let's start with Garbine Muguruza. I'm going to start very open-ended before we get into more specifics. What did we learn about her this week? What did you take away from both her title run and her win in the final over Contivate? What did we learn about Garbina Muguruza? I don't know if we learned a lot about her. I think, if anything, we can hope that she learned a little bit about herself as she spoke after winning uh, the final about the importance of embracing the crowd support of which she had a tremendous amount this week in Guadalajara and feeling like that in the past, maybe she's tried too hard to block out support and crowd cheering and all those other elements that you deal with when you're on a tennis court. And maybe that's been to her detriment, but it was such a phenomenal turnaround from losing her first match to Karolina Pliskova, falling down a set to Barbara Krechkova, who had already beaten her at least twice this season already, and just really flipping a switch and winning her last eight sets, held serve, I think something like 26 straight times in between the end of the Krechkova match to the beginning of the final against Kansavite which made a f tremendous difference through those matches, particularly against Palabadosa in the semifinals, did not even really let her get a, a break point, I think, until the second set, and then really just uh, getting over the finish line against um, Annette on Wednesday. So I think if she's coming out of this learning more about herself and what she's capable of, I think that that's bad news for the rest of the tour because she was really giving us a lot of what she gave us at the beginning of the year. It was sort of a book-ended season for her, playing phenomenal tennis the first two months of the year, and then sort of fading away with injuries and inconsistency has a lot of points to defend uh, at the start of next year, something like 54% of her total ranking points uh, coming into January. So if she can come out of this with the momentum and confidence that she's really going to need to tackle the early part of the season, she's very much in it for, uh, for another potential Grand Slam title. Yeah, she was on a total tear until the injury in Charleston. And then she lost first round at Roland uh, Garros to Marta Kostyuk. And then th there were some good results, but never went past the round of 16 at any of the majors. And it felt like a what if year for Muguruza until last week. It was always like, a, well, she was great. And then she got injured and then she didn't do good in the big events. So it was kind of like, okay, a lot of wins this year, but it it's felt like she needed this week to really call 2021 a success. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, you talk about writing for tennis.com, there was a stretch uh, in February where it felt like I was writing about Garbini Muguruza every day because she was not only winning, but she was playing the best matches of the day against Iga Svantec, against Rina Sabalenka, winning the final against Krechkova in Dubai. I mean, and then again in Doha playing against uh, Petra Kvitova, um, right? In the final in Doha. Sounds good to me. I totally make that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, making the final in, in Doha, making the final Yara River before the yeah. um, Australian Open, then playing that phenomenal match against Naomi Osaka uh, in Melbourne, having match points really talk about a what if match. I mean, that could have really changed the entire course of the year and certainly of the tournament had Muguruza converted one of those two match points against the eventual champion. Yeah, I think that 
it was a strange season for her coming into Guadalajara. It really did feel like she qualified almost purely on the strength of those first two months, did win Chicago over Ons Shabor. Another, which maybe was a harbinger of things to come, was down a set and really just flipped a switch against Shabor and, and, and proved that she was capable of doing that against um, even higher ranked opposition um, in Guadalajara. I think, yeah, it comes down to the serve. It comes down to confidence because physically and technically she is the player that you look for to be that dominant force in women's tennis. And it just hasn't happened for the last couple of years. This was her first time making the WTA final since 2017 after qualifying three straight seasons and making the semis at her 2015 debut. So, I mean, this was a long time coming for Muguruza. It's not a grand slam, like she said, but in terms of the year and in terms of finishing as strongly as she did, I think this is probably one of her best seasons ever. And, and her best results since winning Wimbledon in 2017. I was impressed with her grit. You mentioned the, the two round robin matches that she won back to back, uh, or excuse me, she lost the first one, won the second one with her real kind of life tournament life on the line there uh, against, against Krachikova. I also felt from that point on, she was the only player in these insane conditions with the altitude and uh, a lot of the tennis. I, I thought it was entertaining, but statistically it was ugly because it was really hard to control the ball. So we're getting a lot of unforced errors. Defense, I think, was difficult because the ball was flying through the air. Muguruza was the only player to sustain aggression while controlling the ball to my eyes. Uh, why do you think Muguruza was able to limit the unforced errors, but also kind of stay on top of points? That's a great question. I mean, because you're also dealing with a lot of the day to night. I think Muguruza was one of the only, Muguruza and Sabalink were the two of the only players to get only night sessions, but then she had to turn around and play the semifinal in the day after Bedosa had played two of her, her last two matches in the day. So I thought that was potentially going to, create problems for Muguru's in the semifinals. I think Kontavite even said that the, the, sh the shift from playing from day to night really messed with her, um, messed with her game and messed with the, her timing and her rhythm, but, you know, was really just able to hit through all of the conditions. Loves playing in Mexico is now, I think, 14 and two in the country alone as a two-time, <clears throat> as a two-time champion in Monterey. You know, I think so much of it for Muguruza is mental, is about momentum having this finally having this great team around her led by Conchita Martinez is in familiar circumstances and familiar conditions and just had that crowd support I think it just made for just made her win you know it was just like I she agree. has that great technique and doesn't have the hitchiness of, a, of an arena Sabalenka doesn't have the heavy spin of an Iga Svantec I mean a lot of players in this field have very unique interesting technique even Barbara Kuchkova with the extreme forehand grip. I mean, between Bedosa, Kontavite, and Muguruza, those are probably three of the cleanest, purest ball strikers in the field. And sure enough, three of those made the semifinals. I think that in, in tough conditions, clean technique won out in the end. The, the finalist, Kontavite, I don't know if you know this, David, but you're actually the reason why she turned her career around and, and had this breakthrough at the end of 2021. Did you, did you know that? I mean, I have been pretty critical of Annette. So if she's doing all of this to spite me, then more power to her. I have enjoyed being wrong because I have enjoyed watching her play as well as she's played the last couple months, but I'm, I'm hearing, I'm dying to hear your logic on this one. Well, well, we talked before Cleveland and you told me, and I remember the exact words because I liked it. 
you said Gil Contivate, she's narratively stuck. She's been hanging around the same kind of doing the same thing for a couple of years now. Nothing's really going up or down. She's just there. So when when you called her narratively stuck, she she set out and, and changed that. And now she's she's won, let's see, 29 of her last 33 matches to end the year. But in all seriousness, um, you just mentioned Conchita Martinez. And that led to a, a apparent shift in Garbine Muguruza back uh, in 2020, making the Australian Open final as soon as she made that coaching change. Contivate hires Tursunov. It's like uh, on no turnaround that I can recall with just a flick of a flip of a switch. She's a better player after bringing on Tursunov. How would you explain the effect? of Martinez and Tursunov. I don't know if it's different, if, if it's a lot the same or or what you see in those relationships. I think there's something to be said about both Martinez and Tursunov bringing positivity. I think certainly we can see that be true with, Mugur- with Muguruza. I think there was always, you know, we saw a lot of on-court coaching timeouts between Muguruza and her former coach that seemed to be tense and seemed to be volatile and did not seem to be a tenable situation. And yet that partnership held for many, many years in spite of Muguruza winning Wimbledon with Conchita Martinez in the box. That was not an immediate shift for me. I don't know. I'm not in, I'm not her, but I feel like if I was in her situation, I might've really considered taking on Conchita full-time in light of that success, but I'm a bit more of a, (laughs) a bit more of a volatile person myself. Maybe I would be making that sort of that big decision in the wake of a big emotional triumph. But, um, I think with Tursunov, Kansavite has talked about the the positivity that he brings to her team. I think we've seen what Tursunov was able to do with Irina Sabalenka. He also um, came on board right around the time that Sabalenka made her big surge up the rankings and and really played sort of that similar hyper-aggressive game and, and I think has made Kansavite feel just more confident in her decision-making, has just gone for some huge swings. I mean, in the Cluj-Napoca final against Simona Halep was really just taking the racket at Contavite in, in matches past. I think it beaten her 6-1, 6-1 the last time they played in Australia. So, I mean, cannot say enough about what Tursan has been able to do for Annette, the player. Um, but yeah, to your point or to my point about being narratively stuck, I mean, we've seen late career surges from players, you know, winning Grand Slams at 30 or even what um, Anjali Kerber was able to do. At tw- you know, we remember, we forget, she was like 23-24 when she made her um, U.S. Open semifinal at, in 2011. Kansavite is such a unique situation because she has been stuck between 15 and 25 for the last couple of years, has been that solid player, but was not making the breakthrough that you kind of thought she was about to make in 2017, was on the verge of beating Caroline Wozniacki at Wimbledon, doesn't get the job done, and really was lacking the sort of signature wins um, to her career, and still lacking it at majors, where that's going to be the final frontier for Kansavite, but the way she was able to play this week in Guadalajara against only top eight opposition, really blitz the field and win all the matches that mattered up until the final, and I think maybe just sort of ran out of gas and had sort of the Muguruza buzzsaw (laughs) effect in the final, but I think, you know, just you don't wake up, I think, at 25 and suddenly conquer major physical and mental limitations. I mean, this was a player who was not considered to be overly athletic and was not considered to be a tremendous mental giant and has been able to win a lot of physical and mental matches. I mean, she was down a set in 4-0 in the final 
of Moscow to Alexander Ale- Ekaterina Alexandrova. I mean, this could have been a totally different story had she lost those last few games. Um, but so, yeah, it's just, I love to see it because she's a really great ball striker and it, it was, it's been so much fun to see her really well on the ball as she has in the last couple of weeks. And hopefully she's able to carry this momentum into 2022. Tursunov, I think certainly has this trust thing, getting his players to go after it and to just, you know, trust your hands, trust your, your talent level to, to take these risks on the court. Uh, I guess the question is now, once there's expectation, it's how does she, how does she deal with that? How does she respond? I mean, are you, are you between, I guess there's like, sure thing. This is Contivate. She's going to be a, a, a top 10 player on tour for, she's still, she's still young in her mid twenties, as you mentioned for the next couple of years, no doubt about it. Or there's okay. She, she's, she had the, the magic, magic pixie dust for the, you know, fall 2021, but you could see it going either direction. You could see her fluctuating, falling back back down a little bit. Where do you land on in on that for Contivate? It's tough because we've seen a lot of late season surges re- results in big WTA finals triumphs. And on one hand, you have someone like Caroline Wozniacki, who finally wins like this huge title at the WTA finals and goes on to win the Australian Open the next year. But on the other hand, you have winners like Dominika Sibilkova or even that year uh, Kuznetsova made the semis, you know, these, or um, Caroline Garcia, the fi- the following year made the semis sort of mirroring Kansevite winning Wuhan and Beijing back to back to make the final and having trouble backing that up. I think part of the problem with peaking at the WTA finals is that there isn't a tournament the next week. It's that's, that's it. And then you have two months to sort of sit with yourself and figure out how do I replicate this? And then having to go all the way down to Australia you know, kind of hit the ground running in many respects, that can be difficult for some players. I think what what hopefully will benefit Kansavite is the fact that she is in such great phenomenal shape. She's got a great coach that she trusts and she's got clean, clean, pristine technique. You don't look mm-hmm. at her and think this stuff is going to break down. It's all about the head and it's all about that self-belief. And I, you would hope racking up as many matches as she's, as she's been able to do since before the U.S. Open, winning in Cleveland, um, and then just doing what she was able to do both indoors and outdoors. I think it also maybe even helps psychologically that she was able to do this in Guadalajara outdoors. It wasn't just this sort of fluky indoor run where she was just taking control of the elements um, or lack thereof at indoor events. It really dealt with altitude and dealt with day-to-night transitions and was able to still play some really phenomenal tennis and sort of just ran out of gas at the end. I mean, she spoke about it after the match that she really just feels that self-belief now that that was really what was missing for her. So you would hope that she's able to carry this into next season. Um, But it's sort of a 50-50 toss-up based on some some of these previous WTA finals uh, fairy tale finishes. Yep, and and we've seen that on the men's men's side as well. Jack Sock, Grigor Dimitrov. I would say that um, let's let's get to, to to some other some of the other players here. And by the way, that's a good point about the conditions because the fall season becomes it, it feels pretty monotonous in terms of conditions. It's the same over and over and over again. And I agree that it's a, a huge confidence booster for her to go into uh, these really unique and unsettling conditions and and have similar success. Um, the two semifinalists. We'll start with Maria Sakari. Amazing year for her. 
obviously making the, the, the two major semifinals and she's so fit. She comes through these three setters, these tough matches, like the one against Andrescu at the U S open. She did it again here and uh, until she didn't in the semifinal. Um, she just has this semifinal block. It's just this, uh, it seems like she's a different player when she hits a semifinal. Are you, are you kind of feeling the the same way about about where she's at right now? I love Maria Sakari. I've spoken to her a lot. She's really sweet. She, as you said, the fittest player on tour, just has been able to create so many opportunities for herself based off of just that sheer athleticism, fitness, being able to outlast these players who maybe aren't at their best, like an Andreasca at the US Open or a Sabalenka in Guadalajara and just sort of rope-a-dope them into hitting themselves off court. I think that the semifinal thing is not a coincidence. I think what's happening is that Maria is hitting a ceiling at these tournaments because she's been able to get through these huge mental, physical wins over players who are not playing great and then are running and then is running into the semifinals against a player who is playing well enough to make the semifinals and is continuing to play well against Sakari. And obviously the more you lose in a semifinal or in a particular round, the more it's going to weigh on you mentally. But I mean, getting Krichkova at the, at Roland Garros, who went on to win the tournament gets uh, Raducanu in the semifinals. The and goes on to win that tournament. I mean, I think she's just, she's hitting a point where she's running into better players and that's sort of holding her back. I think that if she's to make that transition, it's about believing that if I am good enough to make the semifinals, I'm good enough to win. And I think that that's going to be a big mental shift for her. Cause she is definitely one of those players who you feel like she encountered as good as her year was, she encountered so much disappointment that you wonder how quickly that will start to backslide. And then she's going to become a lot of players first top 10 win first top five win. Like she's going to become that footnote on a lot of players resumes because she's ranked really high but maybe doesn't have the same kind of confidence that another player who has had similar results, but has been able to take that extra step might have um, in these early rounds. I mean, it's tough because you were watching that third set against Sabalink and you felt like, well, Sakari can get nervous. She got nervous at the end of the Bedosa match where she got back from a breakdown and then just sort of got broken herself to love at four all in the second and was like, Ooh, that was a rough one. You know, either she's going to get nervous or, Arena's going to hit herself off the court. And from 3-1 down in the third, Arena hit herself off the court. And it really didn't have a tremendous amount to do with Maria as much as she was getting balls back in play and getting some stuff back. The unforced errors and double faults from Sabalenka were really hard to ignore. Um, statistically speaking, 19 and all from Arena in that match. So, I mean, again, phenomenal talents, phenomenal person. I just, I don't know what is next for her short of like a really big mental breakthrough where she feels that she believes that she belongs in these semifinals. I don't know if she believes it yet. Right. I think the belief is usually one of the biggest factors here. Three and 13 is her career record tour level in semifinals. And uh, two of, two of those wins came kind of early on. If, if you look at, at her career of making semifinals. So uh, it's been a tough stretch. She had the, the win in Ostrava against, um, against Fiontech. So that was the, the recent win. But other than that, all losses in the semifinals. Hopefully she looks back on the year. I mean, it's her career best year by far. And she can feel good about that and, and draw confidence from that. Uh, Paula Bedosa, another breakout player who started the year well outside the top 50. Uh, incredible rise from her. Another another player who kind of always had the talent needed some mental things to click 
did look a little bit overwhelmed in that semifinal. What do you think the factors were there? Um, I spoke about it a little bit on Twitter. I just feel like for Paula, it was sort of a, a, an accumulation of a lot of different things. I mean, she had the bad luck that in a way Contavite had as well, having to play a dead rubber match that didn't really count towards, she was already in the semifinal. She'd already won her group. Yes, there was prize money points, you know, keeping her win streak alive on the line. But I, she spoke about after that Schwantek match, grappling with how much effort to give and sort of didn't make a decision either way in that match. Like she was trying at some points and then kind of fell off the end, kind of maybe realizing that, you know, this is, I've spent almost two hours or maybe more on court already. I, you know, I have a semifinal to play tomorrow. And then having that emotional hurdle of having to play one of your idols or certainly one of the players who people were comparing you to for most of your early career and kind of sort of leading to these, you know, feelings of depression, anxiety, mental health struggles that, that Paola has been so open about. So I think all of that on top of Muguruza playing as well as she has throughout the tournament. I mean, Paola did really make a good go of it early in that second set, played some phenomenal tennis, but Muguruza was just a wall um, and got everything back and served really, really well, which is important. As, as great as, as Bedosa's service, she can be prone to some double faults and doesn't have that same first serve consistency that, that Muguruza has been able to display this week in Guadalajara. So I think for her, it was a lot. I think for her, that she did just about as well as she possibly could have done at the end of the season, winning Indian Wells when she was not even a factor in my own mind, as much as I have enjoyed following Paula and has have spoken to her a lot. She was not even, when I spoke to Alex Gruskin a few weeks ago before the, uh, the finals, was not even on my radar as someone who can make the finals, wins Indian Wells over Azarenka, makes the finals, wins her group, gets two really solid wins over Sabalenka and Sakari to, to qualify for the semis. It did kind of feel like we were waiting for that Bedosa Contabai final, but I don't think any of us predicted that Muguruza would play as well as she did. So I think like Contavide is in that situation where sound technique has, you know, recovered from a lot of potentially derailing moments this season, you know, losing that Roland Garros quarterfinal to Zidanecek, losing her coach midway through the season, having to scramble and regroup there and just came back stronger every time. So I think in a way it's, she has proven more that she can do better in 2022, just based on the fact that she was dealing with disappointment and setbacks throughout what was really a peak season, whereas Contavite has been just on a straight upward trajectory. Yeah. And technically speaking, I thought it was an eye-opening tournament for me when it comes to her serve. She went into the semifinals as the ace leader in a tournament with Sabalenka and, and Pliskova. And that was like, for, for me, that was a, a moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of some of them, uh, Pliskova, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, the top three seeds didn't make the semifinals. Which one of those surprised you the most? I picked Sabalenka and Pliskova to make the semifinals. Um, Pliskova feels like just bad luck because she did win two of her three matches and just yeah. unfortunately lost that opening set to Krejcikova, you know, took a while to get going, but then figured out that match um, in the end, you know, by all rights, could have been a semifinalist. I think Sabalenka was really just a rough one for me this week because she was coming off of the U.S. Open, yes, with a disappointing loss to Fernandez, a match that she probably should have won because she has more experience and is just, you know, a more well-rounded player at this stage of her career, but really had some good perspective and wisdom and, again, feeling like, yes, this is a potentially derailing moment in your career, but you're taking it in stride. She was on Instagram feeling like, don't you wish there could be a fifth slam? And, you know, she just felt so close to a big, big breakthrough where it felt like it was even going to happen in Indian Wells. And then of course, as we know, 
gets COVID, wasn't vaccinated, you know, like a lot of stuff coming in and then coming into Guadalajara, playing a really strong, like first three quarters ever set against Medosa and then just falling off the radar and then playing what seemed to be a revitalizing win against Fiontech, played some really phenomenal tennis in the late stretches of that one. And then just was overwhelmed by the pressure at the prospect of making the semis. It was a win and in scenario for both of them and just got completely in her head. And it was one of those matches where I kind of felt like we were past that, like based on how she played at Wimbledon and at the U S open for the most part had hit the wall so many times mentally that she'd finally broken through that. And I kind of didn't think against a player that she's won, I think her last four matches with uh, in Sakari that she was going to play as badly as she did. So I just, I hope that she's able to figure out why that happened. Cause she mentioned the serve and wanting to improve the serve. I don't know if it was the serve. I think it was just, I think it was really, really mental for her. So I think coming into the Australian open, where she's as good, has as good a chance as anybody is winning her first major. I still feel that way, but it was just a really disheartened talk about like a narrative moment. Like that was a weird, a jumble for me because it, it felt mm. like she was heading in one direction. And then this, this was a, a head scratcher all told. Yeah. It certainly felt like a, a year of maturing for Sabalenka after getting through the early stages of majors, which she had been struggling to do, but then third set to semifinals gives those matches away in sort of a, a an ugly way. Uh, you know, you would have had to watch. The scoreline doesn't look bad, but if you watch it, it's like, okay, well, four unforced errors and there's the match at the end. Um, but but yeah, I, I do agree. It, it did feel like a bit of a, a reversal. I, I might give her a pass almost on the conditions because I saw so many players struggle to control the ball which in one sense, I thought, well, Sabalenka could be good because I do think it was good for offensive tennis and with the, with the altitude, the way the ball was flying through the air. But in the other sense, uh, I think Sabalenka, I, I like her in heavy conditions where she controls the ball better. Um, I mean, she won Madrid, you know, true. at altitude. And yes. then lost that really bad match in Roland Garros in wet, heavy conditions to Pavlyuchenkova, which was sort of rock bottom for her, it seemed, at this season then, you know, getting as far as she did at Wimbledon in the U S open. I mean, the U S open against Fernandez, you would say she played a bad tiebreak and she played a bad last game in that third set. And those were short, but really consequential right. streaks of bad tennis for most of Guadalajara. And certainly in at the end of that match against Sakari just did not allow herself the opportunity to even make Sakari think for a second because she lost five straight games and <laughs> had opportunities to get to four excuse me, had opportunities to get to 4-1, had points for 4-3, and just could not get over the finish lines. It's it's a rough one because it really felt like she was, again, at least you could say strong team behind her, has a lot of positives to look back on and, and yeah. has not allowed disappointment to derail her yet. And I, I don't I don't think this has the same gravitas for her because it's so much of it has been about the slam for her that I don't think this will really, really wreck her. But for me watching, I was like, oh man, this is... <laughs> not what I was expecting at all. I do like that that she mentioned the the serve improvements. I'd like to see her get some traditional kick serve rotation on her second serve. It, it's a slice serve and and it's fast. So I think that's that's a difficult shot to tame. When it goes in the box, she protects her second serve well, but she she double faults a lot and uh, that that hurt her here. Um, let's end shifting gears on. Um, Peng Shui. Um, I've made a couple of videos on this, so I'm 
I'm not going to talk really about about where where I stand and and the things that that I've been um, talking about. But in terms of what the WTA can and should do at this stage with the farcical email being sent out by state-run media and and really as of recording right now on Thursday morning, no confirmation that Peng Shui is, is okay. It has been, it's a, it's a crazy inflection point um, for the WTA who has been so all in on um, China, Chinese tournaments culminating in the decision to bring the WTA finals to Shenzhen with, you know, an, a, an exorbitant amount of prize money. Ash Barty won's north of $5 million for a week's work. You know, I think that was, uh, it was a, it was a moment for women's tennis for sure that they were able to claim this big prize purse. But I mean, um, the fact that it was, that, that all of this is happening juxtaposed against a very successful WTA finals in Guadalajara. I don't know if Muruza is that upset that she's not winning $5 million in prize money and is only, only coming home with I think a million and a half. I mean, I think it's a great, a great payday for her. And certainly more importantly, she was able to have this tremendous week in front of, you know, ostensibly home fans, you know, fans who really yeah. embraced and adopted her. So um, it's been a strong response from the WTA, certainly stronger than what we got from the ATP when they were dealing with their own um, or continue to deal with issues of and allegations of abuse. Um, Certainly, it helps that it's the player is the victim in this situation. I think that kind of makes things a bit clearer for for all those involved. But all 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 that said, I mean the fact that the WTA has put all a lot of their chips, if not all of their chips, into China. The fact that they are really taking this strong stand is is commendable and admirable. And um, yeah, looking looking, we don't know what the calendar is going to look like in 2022 post Beijing Olympics. You would think that China was ready to open up their doors um, to international athletics following the Olympics. But I don't know if the WTA will be a part of that or as big of a part of that as um, as many were anticipating, just based on the way um, Steve Simon has been speaking, both in press, press releases and in interviews uh, with the New York Times. Right. China's not going to be happy about the things that, that Steve Simon ha- has said. So I don't know if it would come from their end or if it would come from the WTA end. When it comes to to those events not happening, but it certainly I agree. It seems like seems like that's in jeopardy. I think there's between either nine WTA events or eleven WTA events in China. Uh, do, do you know which number is is correct? I think it was. I think it's been as many as eleven. I think in 2019, I think it was something like nine. Um, and right. big tournaments. I mean, I yeah. was at Wuhan in 2019, and it's it was a great tournament. The facilities were great. You know, the court was really good. I've never been to Beijing, but I've heard that that's a really well-run tournament. Um, I know that Shenzhen um, got off to an interesting start. You know, it was it was a um, it was coming at a time where there was a lot of political un- socio political unrest with Hong Kong, and so I think that that created um, its own issues. But um, you know, the WTA has not been in China in two years, and they have largely been able to make a calendar out of not having China as part of it. And maybe that makes the WTA feel confident that they can take their business elsewhere. It's not like they've had the big China sized hole in the calendar short of not having the WTA finals last year, which I felt was like a mistake. I felt like I wish there could have been something that could have been done to have a finals in light of the, the ATP had theirs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an inflection point. And I feel like that's based on the the language that is coming from the WTA. It feels like they are not opposed to 
really revamping their schedule, which again, has not come out yet in a really um, revolutionary way. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, I'm, I'm really glad you can do podcasts now. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> and um, congratulations on, on making it to the off season where uh, maybe you can uh, get some sleep. Yeah, congratulations to you too, Gil. And I, I know you have a big move coming. <laughs> Thank you. All right.